right, so I want to begin this evening by sharing a scene that takes place over in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. So to kind of set the scene, here's what's taking place. Jesus has just finished teaching on the kingdom of heaven, and he is approached by three different religious groups. And each of these groups are coming with their own question, and their questions are intentionally tricky. They are trying to catch Jesus giving the wrong response, saying something off the cuff so that they can turn around and use his comments against him. So the first question was intended to put Jesus on the spot before the Roman officials. The second question was intended to make Jesus look foolish in regards to the afterlife. And then the third question was to try to turn the Jewish people against Jesus. And once again, each of the questions were intentionally tricky, trying to get Jesus to say something so that they could turn around and use that against him. Well, the third question that was asked is, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And here's how Jesus responded. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus simplified 613 laws. And he put them down into two categories. Love God, love people. It was not offensive. It was not over the top. It was also not Jesus' normal MO when responding to people. Jesus had a tendency to throw a verbal grenade in the room, walk around, and just let people handle it from there. If you're not sure if he did that, let me give you a couple of references. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Have a great day. Or how about John 6, 54? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. See you all next week. <laughs> or how about Matthew 8? In this, some dude comes to Jesus and has a very reasonable request. He's asking Jesus if he can go first bury his own dad, and when he's done, come back and follow Jesus. And I'm sure he's thinking Jesus' response is going to be, absolutely, you need to be there with your family. You need to be there at that time. You do that, and when you're finished, look me up. I'll be here. But here's how Jesus responded. Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. I don't even know if I know what that means. <laughs> Jesus' pattern when dealing with religious people was normally shock and awe. And now he comes simple and nice. Love God, love people. Do you know you could tattoo that on your arm and hardened criminals will give you the thumbs up? There's nothing offensive about that. It's one of those things that can be embraced by any major religion around the world. Love God, love people. It seems right. It, it's so right on target. We love the idea of loving God and loving people. We are just not nearly as excited about the application. So I want to focus on the second of those commandments, love people. How exactly do we apply that? 
Does that mean you walk around hugging a lot of people? Does it mean you respect people? That you serve people? That you befriend people? That you help people? What does exactly it mean to love people? Does that mean that everybody is to work in soup kitchens and everybody is to work in homeless shelters and everybody is to help go dig wells in third world countries? Does that, is that what it looks like to love people? Now, before we answer this question, it might also be helpful to ask its sister question that's very closely related. What kind, what kind of people are we supposed to love? That's a hard question to deal with. So in Luke chapter 10, there's a very similar story to the one that we're getting into tonight. And once again, Jesus is asked the, the same question about what's the greatest commandment, and his response is the same. Love God, love people, same breakdown. And as soon as he gave his answer in that text, the guy asking the question saw the difficulty of loving your neighbor as yourself and has a very quick follow-up question. He says, so who is my neighbor? <laughs> in other words, let's define neighbor before we go any further in this. Who are we exactly supposed to love? Now, if you're talking about loving people that you already like, that's a pretty wonderful command. If you're talking about loving people on the fringes, I don't know how we apply that. Let's be as, as clear and as focused as we can for just a moment. Does that mean we are supposed to love murderers? pedophiles, and rapists. Does that mean that we are supposed to love the person who just gunned down children in a school? Does that mean that we practically love the terrorist who just blew up innocent lives? Does that mean that you love the person who is making your life miserable? Does that mean that you love the person at work who's going after your job? Does that mean that you love your friend who just stabbed you in the back? See, it's one thing for us to talk verbiage, love God, love people. But when you get into the actions of what does that look like to practically love people, and I'm not talking just the people you like, I'm talking about people, love God, love people. What does that look like for a believer to live in that way? In this section of Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul, he teaches us how to love others. He teaches us what gets in the way of that love and he also teaches us what happens when we refuse to love others. Now, these are some hard teachings I'm getting into tonight, without a question. So unless you happen to be somehow related to Oscar the Grouch, there's a really good chance we would all say loving people is a good idea. It makes the world a better place. Could you imagine just a moment what it would look like if every believer, every follower of Jesus Christ practiced that principle? Christianity is the largest religion in the world. There's about 2 billion people on this planet who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. What would it just look like if Christians said, we're going to love people? Could you imagine what that world would look like? When you open up your newspaper and you see hatred and division and 
fighting and wars. Could you imagine what that would look like if the body of Christ started loving people like Jesus taught? It changed the world. We got a lot to get into tonight. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles this evening. Galatians chapter 5. We'll be in verses 13 through 15. I am speaking on the subject, love one another. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. It says, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that God, your spirit would move in this place. Lord, these are hard teachings. It's teachings that apart from your spirit, living it in and through us, it's not going to happen. God, in our flesh, in our humanity, it's hard sometimes to love the people we like and to love them well. To do this, God, you have to do it through us. But Lord, may we not run from the hard teachings of Scripture, but instead recognize our inadequacy, submit ourselves before you, and pray that you do something that we cannot. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to do a mental shift, so to speak, as we get into this section. And that is to get the feel for what the Apostle Paul is doing. It's important to see that he is now recognizing some new themes. He's bringing out some different ideas. His teaching technique is shifting at this particular moment. So Paul shifts from being extremely theological to extremely practical. Now, most of the time, believers are really excited about that. We, we like practical teaching. We like to be able to get our hands on it and try to live it out the following day. So he's making that shift for us. He goes from challenging wayward saints to now encouraging wayward saints. Now, we like that part too. We like a good encouraging word. He also moves from stand firm in your freedom and don't go back to the law. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Two, remember your freedom and don't use it as a license to sin. Amen to that too. By the way, that's, that's the other side of the exact same coin. He also describes there's two ways that we can live. It's either we live according to the desires of the flesh or we live in dependence on the power of the spirit. There is a shift that he's making, but it is a practical shift. He's helping us walk out our theology. So starting in verse number 13, the apostle Paul addresses the other side of Christian liberty. Now for some believers, they run from liberty to the law because they think it's safer. Other believers run past liberty into sin because they want to indulge fleshly desires. Paul is not the first person in Scripture to bring out the idea that grace and liberty are not opportunities for the flesh. You might want to write these references off to the side in your notes. In Jude verse 4, Jude spoke of ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Uh, Peter admonished believers to act as free men 
and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. So as Christians, we need to be unapologetically about teaching the grace of God. We need to preach the cross. We need to stand firm in the gospel message. We need to be advocates for the freedom and the liberty that we have in Christ. But I want you to listen closely to this. If people do not take time to study grace, study grace according to God's word, not grace according to the last preacher you just heard, sometimes a preacher can be wrong. Check what you hear against what God said. If you don't take time to study grace according to scripture, and if we still try to champion freedom without an understanding of biblical grace, here's the issue. We don't know what we have been freed from, and we don't know what we have been freed for. So what happens in that moment? Patterns of sin begin to emerge in the life of the believer because they're not deep enough in the word to recognize when grace is being abused. Did you know you can abuse the grace of God? Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is this unbelievable gift from God. My, my prayer for this evening is when we get into this, because it's going to go deep. We're going to be layer after layer getting into this. My prayer as we walk away more excited about grace than we've ever been. But at the same time, we walk away with a greater dependence upon God because we recognize how quickly and how easily we can slide right back into the patterns of the flesh. So here's our big truth for this evening. You are free to reject the impulses of the flesh and serve one another through love. You're free. What are you free for? You are free to reject the impulses of the flesh and serve one another through love. What are we freed from and what are we freed for? That's the question that we're going to be working through in our time this evening. So here's the first part of that. Look at what it says back over in verse number 13, first phrase. For you were called to freedom, brethren. You're called to freedom. This is not the first time the Apostle Paul has brought up freedom in this particular letter. He's already spoken of the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus back over in chapter 2, verse 4. He's also traced our spiritual lineage back to Abraham's wife, Sarah, as she was a free woman. Chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. In chapter 5, verse 1, he has that incredible declarative statement. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Now, here's the difference. Here's what he's working through in this moment. Here's the opposite side of the same coin. Chapter 5, verse 1, freedom was threatened by a relapse back into legalism. And the result would have been assuming, again, a yoke of slavery. Now, in chapter 5, verse 13, freedom is threatened by presuming upon the grace of God, and the result would be sinful living and moral chaos. He's saying there's another side to this. You're free, but you need to know what you've been freed from and what you are freed for. So in verses 13 through 15, Paul explains the nature and the purpose of our freedom. It begins with that word for in verse number 13. It connects the freedom that he's talking about back to the rebuke that was just given over in verse number 12. 
Now, he just made this comment. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. That was his wish for them, for that crowd, for the false teachers, that they would not recreate more children of slavery. That was his thought for them. But now he's talking about for those who are followers of Christ that want to lean into grace. He's saying, but you, my brethren, are called to freedom. Well, free for what? To reject the impulses of the flesh. Look at what he says. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. As I've said before, freedom is not the ability to do whatever we want. Freedom is the ability to do what is right. We are freed from the penalty of sin, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, and we are also freed from the power of sin, Romans chapter 6, verse 18. We are freed from the demands of the law, Romans chapter 6, verse 14, and we are freed from the impulses of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. There's a lot of freedom that is spoken of according to Scripture. Now, the word here, talking about flesh, is used earlier in Galatians in order to refer to our physical body. It mentions that, chapter 2, verse 20. But now in this context, he uses it to describe the remnants of our former sin nature. So we got to pause here for just a moment to make sure we understand exactly what is happening here. Prior to being saved, every single person is born with a sin nature. That's how we're born. That's our default setting. We are born with a tendency for sin a proclivity towards sin, a desire for sin. You don't have to teach somebody to sin. You have to teach them to do what is right. You don't ever have to teach your child to go through into, I don't know, uh, be, be hurtful to other people. You have to teach them to stop hitting people and to start being nice. There, there's already a tendency that is built into humanity. That is that sin nature. Now, at the moment of salvation, I want you to write these things down because this is so, so important. So many of the questions people have about where their life is today in Christ comes back to a misunderstanding about what Jesus did for them at the moment of salvation. So I want you to write these down. Here's some references. Moment of salvation the Bible says you are born again, John chapter 3, verse 3. Born again. You are given God's nature, Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. You have been recreated in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 10. And you are made a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old nature the old you, the old sinful man, died with Christ on the cross. Now, somebody might say, Paul, I don't think my old man got dead yet because I, I still have a lot of sin that I deal with. Like, if the sin nature is dead, why do I still battle with sin? Why do I still battle with these desires? That's where the Bible speaks of the word, the flesh. So the habits that you developed with a sin nature, the tendencies that you acquired with that sin nature, the traits you leaned into with that sin nature, all of those things are still in you when you're saved. 
The issue is he saved you. He's forgiven you. He has redeemed you. He has brought you into his family. You have a new nature that is in Christ. But all of the habits and the tendencies and the traits, those are a part of your life. So here's what that looks like. If you filled your mind with porn before you got saved, those images are still in your mind. If you learned to manipulate people and circumstances before you got saved, those tendencies are still a part of your nature. If prior to Christ you were a drug addict and you get saved, you are completely forgiven, 100% redeemed. But guess what? You're going to be jonesing for a fix afterwards. There, there are traits and tendencies and habits that have been developed under a sin nature. And the issue here is those pieces are called the flesh. So once you are saved, be, be clear on this. Once you were saved, it's not that those things have not been forgiven, not been redeemed, not been released. The power of those has been broken by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But one of the issues that happens afterwards is the apostle Paul keeps teaching people, renew the mind, renew the mind, renew the mind. How do you renew the mind? You renew the mind in the word of God. You renew the mind in time of prayer before God. You renew your mind in order to start seeing yourself as God sees you. Did you know one of the most crippling things that will happen in a believer's life is to view themselves according to their old nature prior to being saved? One of the things that happens in a lot of group therapy programs is they encourage people to always associate with the addiction that brought them there. Guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your identity is not, I'm an alcoholic. Your identity is not, I'm a drug addict. Your identity is not, I'm an adulterer. Your identity is, I am a child of the king. I am righteous and I am holy before my God. That is my identity in Christ. We have to begin to see ourselves as God sees us according to his word. That is not us speaking something into existence that's out there. That is us believing and holding on to what God has already said to be true about us. So when you study the flesh in scripture, you'll see the flesh is all about self. It's how do I get mine how do I get my way? How do I preserve self and indulge self and protect self and inflate self and promote self and look out for self? How do I do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year? The flesh is all about me. Pause. When you look in the news today, is it just me or does it seem like the flesh is on major display around the world? It's all about me. It's mine. It's selfishness. And here's the issue on that. We can understand if a lost person acts that way. But what about a child of God? What about the one who, according to Scripture, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. And yet we live as though we are our own. While believers are to live in the flesh, Galatians 2.20. We are not to be of the flesh or according to the flesh, 2 Corinthians 1.17. To live according to the flesh is to live selfishly. It is 
to live depending upon yourself. Look at what the Apostle Paul says about that kind of living in verse number 13. He says, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Yes, you're free, but you're not free to indulge the selfish desires. Christ does not free us to do whatever we want to do. He frees us to do what we have been recreated to do in Christ Jesus, which is live righteously. Think of it like this. Jesus freed us from the penalty and the power of sin. Does it make sense that we would waste our freedom by going right back into the same sin that enslaved us? That's what Paul is dealing with in this text. Those who are on one side that say, well, man, if I am under grace, if I'm free, I'm just going to live it up. I'm going to do my thing. Under a cloak of Christian liberty, there are believers, professing Christians who claim, I'm free to get drunk. I'm free to sleep around. I'm free to say whatever I want. I'm free to watch whatever I want. I'm free to do whatever I want. And they boast in that type of freedom. Listen, that is not a sign of embracing grace. That's a sign of unrepentance. Grace does not set us free to sin. It sets us free from sin. A true believer there's going to be times that we struggle with sin. We'll fall back into sinful patterns. But listen, when the Spirit of God is inside of you, you're not going to enjoy it. There is going to be a conviction. There is going to be a prompting. The Spirit of God's going to get all over you. He's going to work you over until you either get right or you become so miserable that nobody can live with you. When the Spirit of God is living in a person, you have a new nature that hates sin and loves righteousness. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. We are free to serve one another through love. Look at what it says in the text. But through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So here is the second great commandment that Jesus has mentioned. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul ends verse 13 with the antidote to fleshly, selfish, sinful living. Here's the antidote. Through love, serve one another. Key word here is love. Now, if you were to write this out as a spiritual equation, here's what it would look like. I believe this is in your notes. Liberty plus love equals service to others. Liberty minus love equals slavery to sin. How do you know if there is love to accompany your liberty? You're going to be serving others. According to the text, that's what he's saying. Do not use this as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Did you know that love upholds God's law when it comes to people? That is, if you truly love people, you won't steal from them. You won't lie about them. You're not going to envy them. You're not going to do anything to try to hurt that individual. You're going to love them. Here's a great statement. God's substitute 
for a head full of laws is a heart full of love. If you want to look at what's happening here, when he summarizes the entire law, 613 commandments, and he puts it in two categories, love God, love people, his, his way of substituting the head filled with all of these laws is say, have a heart of love, and it's going to be lived through you. Now, if somebody looks at this text and they say, all right, Paul, I, I agree with that. I don't want to be selfish. I want to love other people. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to do exactly that. I love the fact that in the same breath, the Apostle Paul stops that foolishness. Look at what it says in verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these two are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Christians cannot overcome the sinful impulses of the flesh by willpower alone. You know why? Self will never cast out self. Self will never cast out self. Now that's the problem that the Apostle Paul discussed over in Romans 7. He said, for what am I doing? I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Now, the Apostle Paul is not saying that a believer cannot be victorious. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying a believer cannot overcome the impulses of the flesh with willpower alone. Hey, I got a phrase. I don't know if you've heard me say it before. Everything God desires to do in and through your life, he will accomplish out of the overflow of your relationship with him. Another example of that. You and I cannot live the commands of Christ ourselves. The commands of God are written to the life of Christ in you. So what's our job? Oh, listen, this is beautiful. By the way, I had a conversation after the first service about the law and about grace. And many people know 613 commands, laws over in the Old Testament. Did you know there's 1,050 in the New Testament? For the person who says, that's all Old Testament right there. I'm free. Oh, you're not going to like the New Testament. They got more. So when you look at that, you can either be overwhelmed and say, I don't know how I can do it. Because you could go back to the Ten Commandments and you find out we can't even keep ten. Go back even further from then. The original command is don't eat from that tree. We couldn't even keep one. Now you got 613, you got 1,050 in the New Testament. If you try to keep all of those in line in your mind and say, okay, I can't do this, 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 I really shouldn't do that, that's going to get me in trouble, I need to do this, I want to do this. You try to do that in your mind, you're going to go crazy. Here's what the beauty is as a follower of Jesus Christ. You got one job, be with your Savior. Be with your Savior. Abide with him. When you are with him, he will do in and through you what you could never do for yourself. He will live through you what it looks like to be righteous. He leads you into a path of holiness. And it's, it's not you, it's him through you. Christians cannot overcome the impulses of the flesh by willpower alone. 
To love others as God desires, he has to be the one to love others through us. Look at what it says in verse 16. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself in this, but sometimes I just can't help myself. To walk by the Spirit means we rely on the Spirit, we walk in step with the Spirit, and we are led by the Spirit. When that happens, God does in and through us what we could never do. So go back to our original set of questions. Are we to love all people? Yes. What does it mean to love people? It means we reject the flesh, that is living for self and relying on self, and we serve others. How do you love people you don't even like? You can't, but he can through you. What if you weren't a very loving person to start with? Hey, here's the beauty of this. You are a new creation in Christ. I don't know if you remember the Apostle Paul's story, but he was throwing Christians in jail and killing them prior to meeting Jesus. And God saves him, and now he's the one giving his life in service for others. It's not about where Jesus found you. It is about what he has done in your life. What happens if we don't love one another? Verse 15 tells us, but if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Did you know that description is that of wild animals who are engaged in a deadly struggle? When we fail to love, we are left with fleshly impulses and the flesh will always hurt people around us. The only way to love people like that is for Jesus to love them through us. Here's your big truth again, and we close. You are free to reject the impulses of the flesh and serve one another through love. Jesus loved us so much that he delivered us from the slavery of sin, and he gave us freedom in Christ. The Apostle Paul gives this beautiful description, and, and this is cool, and we're going to close here. In verse 13, he says that we have come out of slavery by love, and we are to serve others through love. That, that's the series of events that has now happened. Do you know the word for serve and the word for slave come from the same root word, doulos? Freedom and slavery are not exclusive terms. The issue are what are we enslaved to and what are we free for? Listen to this and we close. God's love for us freed us from sin. God's love through us frees us to serve. Both are a part of freedom. When we walk through, this is the gospel. Sunday nights back in January, I gave this statement. A disciple is someone who pursues Jesus by loving God, uniting with believers, serving the world, and entrusting the gospel. Serving others is not a ministry within the church. Serving others is a part of walking as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We have one of the most servant-hearted churches I've ever seen.
You know, one of my greatest joys this morning just watching what God was doing is watching as people saw family after family leave to get baptized and recognizing there weren't enough counselors and watching people in the church grab their Bible and say, I'm about to fill the gap. You know what that is? That's the body of Christ serving and loving each other. Listen, that's a part of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. The greatest testimony that a church has in a community that's around them is the power of a changed life. And when that changed life comes outside the walls of the church and starts serving in the community, it is a billboard for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Serving in the community, again, is not one program in the church. It's the calling of the body of Christ. Through love, serve one another. So how is God loving others and serving others through you? Are you using the gifts that God has placed in your life in order to help serve others? Are you allowing God to love people through you? Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for all of the incredible, incredible things that you continue to do. And Lord, we recognize that apart from your spirit moving in and through our lives, then God, we just are going to do a lot of church services. But Lord, I am praying that there is such a fire, such an intimacy, such a burden for relationship with you, that our services are simply a reflection of the fire that you've already kindled in each of our hearts individually as as we've been alone with you. Lord, I thank you that tonight we get a chance to present members. This morning we had a chance to witness people make professions of faith and those who followed through in baptism. God, thank you for your activity in this church. So Lord, we're grateful for each part of that. In Jesus' name, amen.